1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? What do you do for a living? Lieutenant, is there a six-foot bat in Gotham City? Nice outfit. You look fine. I didn't ask. I have given a name to my pain. What are you? I'm Batman. Where did he get those wonderful toys? My life is really complex. Winged freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and I have with me today my friends Zaki Hassan. Hello. And Brian Hall. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks, guys, for making the time to get on. I know, you know, we always have we always have to juggle around our schedules, but I, I appreciate that you guys are always willing to do it for me because I just enjoy having you on and talking to you. Same. It's always a good time chatting here. 
So uh, it's it's mainly Brian's it's mainly Brian's schedule. I want I want it on record. <laughs> I'm ready to go anytime. It's it's that guy causing yeah. trouble. Somehow, you know, <laughs> I, I have to say to I, I am amazed at how available you are with knowing knowing, you know, you, what do you, you have five kids? Uh last I checked. At last count. Yeah. <laughs> five five kids and if I'm remembering right, they're between like the ages of four and fourteen. Uh, close five and fifteen. So okay, <laughs> pretty good. So so yeah. that's that's kind of like an insane situation to actually have it, any free time. It, I just really I just is. assume like when you walk downstairs and you see your wife, there's like a little halo over her head. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I can attest to she, that actually. She she, she is uh, uh, an absolute soldier. She has she has patience unlike. Uh, any other human being on this earth I've ever met, and that's that's absolutely true. I've never seen anything like it. So it's you know, I, I tip my hat to her. I, I I tip my hat every day. And my and my solution, by the way, is when my kids uh, uh, demand uh, my attention, I just ignore them. And that's uh, <laughs> that's how I that's that's what works for me. That's that's my solution. Yeah. No, I I I would say no. I only have two. I have two kids and two stepkids, but, you know, I, I raised two from childhood. And I think your solution is actually similar to mine, even though I had fewer of them. <laughs> and, and and the solution is often to get them interested in what you're interested in mm, so that you yeah. could say, hey, kids, let's go to the movies. And they say, yeah, let's go. And so you're taking them to see something you want to see. And, <laughs> and, and you're being a good dad at the same time. It, it very much that that has uh, inadvertently that became my approach and I'm sort of I'm reaping some of the benefits of that now, you know, especially with my, my older ones, you know, my oldest is 15, uh, my second one is 13. And so like usually on a Thursday afternoon, if there's something out, I'll just be like, hey, let's go watch a movie. And, you know, it's 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 like dad time, but it's actually me also knocking out my viewing. You know? Yeah, no, I, I think it's the, the you know. The move, the whole movie thing, and it goes well with this podcast. But it's it's a, you know, it's a great source for that because you do have that communion, communion. I don't know, communicate community feeling, whatever it might be, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but you have a, a common feeling with your kids, so they're enjoying it. You're making memories for them, but you're still doing something you enjoy, and you're not just suffering through something for their benefit that you know that they're going to sense that you're not really enjoying it or something the only time i could tell you where that backfired on me was when i took my son to see the Yu-Gi-Oh movie oh no <laughs> because that was just god awful <laughs> but other than that it's you know it's always been a good thing when i said hey guys let's go to the movies and the two of them were to this day and and they're you know fairly older now uh but they're to this day if i say let's go to the movies they're like sure let's go uh, which, which is a great thing because some kids, as they get older, they're embarrassed to go with their parents, you know? Right. Anyway, uh, so we're, we're here today. Now, the, the last time the three of us spoke, if I'm not mistaken, we discussed the Batman 66 Yeah. Movie, and we're following up on that with Batman 89. And... You know, because I'm older than you guys, I was in my 20s when this opened, and I think you guys were both pre-teens. Mm-hmm. I was nine. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a I totally different perspective, but I think while it was different, I think it was positive on both ends. I think the level of excitement was probably similar, uh, although the reasons for the excitement might have been different. And 
it's funny because I remember as this movie was being produced or as things were coming, you know, as information was being made available because we didn't have the internet the way we do now. But I remember when I first heard, you know, Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, in my mind, I pictured this as being, you know, it was going to be the same as Batman 66, just with a new cast. Right. You know, right. I, I did not think this was going to be a serious movie. Right. Uh, like there'd be winking involved. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I didn't expect, you know, anything. I didn't expect what we got. That's that's the mm -hmm. bottom line. Uh, but, you know, the, the excitement level was building and building. And, uh, you know, I think they did a really, really good job of just making the bat symbol. You know, everywhere you went, you know, you'd see that on subways and you'd see it on billboards. But, you know, they weren't really giving you a lot of what's in the movie, but they right. were just building up the, the anticipation level. Uh, and when the movie finally did open, you know, I was like I said, I was I was pretty much at a fever pitch. And uh, I probably saw this in a movie theater about five times. Oh, wow. Hmm. OK. Nice. So, you know, it, it, it's I, I think, you know, you, you naturally kind of gravitate towards your own situation and i'm sure you know you're thinking oh you know because we were younger this was big but it was still big for me too as somebody who grew up loving comics and you know up to this point the only you know serious i would put in air quotations comic book movie you know was superman mm -hmm. and even mm -hmm. that you know had some you know some pretty big uh, comic relief with otis right you know, and then, and then Superman 2 had that, you know, the, the Richard Lester comedy version out, uh, that came out. Yeah. So, they, you know, it, while it was, you know, while it was epic and it was great, it still wasn't totally serious. And then, you know, at least this one, when it first came out, it felt totally serious to me. Mm-hmm. I remember, I, I've read about this, and I'm curious about your experience with it, but there was such a backlash to Keaton's casting and people... Just unsure about what this was going to be that they basically hastily cobbled together a trailer and threw it into theaters just to be like no 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 check this out and you can look it up on youtube and it is so rough it almost feels like it was, wasn't even sound mixed like you know it, and but i remember it and i remember being like whoa <laughs> it's just it, it looked and even with the rough sound it just sounded different like anything that I, I could have imagined because i only at that age i only really knew batman 66 so i'm curious what what your experience was with that paul do you and well both of you do you remember going to the theater and seeing that and going oh that's what's up ahead i had not seen that trailer uh and again like i said i i had thought it was going to have the same tone as batman 66 i thought it was going to mm -hmm. be you know all tongue-in-cheek uh and I, I remember reading you know, when you, when you talk about the casting of Michael Keaton, I remember uh, Adam West was criticizing it, saying yeah. basically that he should still be playing the part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so th there was definitely, you know, not what you see on the Internet nowadays, but there was definitely a verbal backlash from uh, probably mostly from people who had no business complaining about it, really, uh, about Keaton being cast. Because at that point, you know, Keaton was known for... Uh, he was on the TV show Working Stiffs. He was in the movie Night Shift, which I love. Uh, but, you know, he was a comedy actor. He wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who you could take serious as a superhero at that time. Uh, and he basically just proved everybody wrong. Because right. today, even, even, you know, having viewed The Batman, 
he is probably my favorite actor cast in the Batman slash Bruce Wayne role. Mm -hmm. So what was your take on it, Zachy? Well, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned before that for me, uh, this movie was my very first exposure to Michael Keaton, you know? So, so this Mm -hmm. is, uh, the ground floor, but yeah, I, I, I sort of, I miss those pre-internet days where, you know, you didn't know about a movie like two years out and you, you know, you, you weren't being exposed to every development. Uh, I, I think back sometimes and I'm like, if there was like a moment of my life that I'd love to just go and revisit, uh, for a week, it's summer of 89. It's mm-hmm. just to be ensconced in, in Batman again, you know, it's such a pure, memory <laughs> you know yeah. uh and, and i know brian you can relate to this i mean it's like we we were uh the perfect age to just be absolutely uh, to, to to be uncritical in the best way uh, and just sort of take it all in you know it's um, it's funny when you mitch oh sorry i, I don't want to interrupt the, no, no, the go thought, ahead. but it, when you we speak of the logo actually i have like the imdb page up in front of me and i'm looking at it and there's this moment in The Simpsons where a babysitter is trying to display how much control she can have over Bart by holding this violent video game in front of him. And she dangles <laughs> it and then moves it, you know, so he runs into a wall because he's yeah. so <laughs> entranced by it. And that was that logo to me that summer. I mean, I don't know what they did. They understood about our chemistry, but they, they put that image out there and I was like, Wow! I gotta have it on my wall. I don't like you know what I mean. Completely unrelated to the movie. I mean, it was, it was brilliant, and it was also like the perfect beginning, like sort of lead into like this is a little different. You know, this this is something epic. This is grander than what you're expecting. You know, since you guys were fairly, you know, fairly young at the time, did you have at that point much exposure to the character of Batman before the movie came out? I don't, Zach, you probably had more experience with the comics. For me, it was pretty much strictly the TV show. Yeah, well, it was primarily the TV show for me. Uh, I, I had uh, re- read a few of the comics, but I would say my Batman comic book reading definitely started uh, with, with the 89, and I just kind of worked my way backwards. But, but certainly my concept of Batman was ingrained enough with the TV show that when I saw the 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 retail posters you know how they would like sell them in rolls at like walmart mm-hmm. and it was a poster of uh, it's the famous shot of keaton standing in front of the batmobile and it says michael keaton yep. batman and i'm like michael keaton no no adam west is that <laughs> you know <laughs> as as surely as chris reeve was superman adam west was batman right <laughs> you know and and i said before uh i remember seeing my my first the first time i became aware of this movie's existence uh, we were, fl- my family was flying to, uh, Chicago from Saudi Arabia, but it was our summer trip 89. And, uh, there was, like the in-flight magazine had a picture. It was the still of Batman at Axis Chemical where he's shooting the, the grapple gun. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know exactly the still you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and it just knocked me on my ass. I was like, I can't, bl- like, that's Batman. That's Batman from the comics. Mm-hmm. Like, they they did like I was like well if you're gonna do Batman in live action he's just he, he's gonna look like Adam West can't do anything about it you know he's gonna have the kind of the floppy ears and whatever I was like but no they did that you know and yeah. and like I look at this way I I was I was nine and and 
I, I sought out the name of the costume designer. I was like, Bob Ringwood. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, that's what that movie did. I was like, Bob Ringwood knows how to make costumes, you know? <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, just as, as you're talking about that, it's, it's kind of coming to me that this was kind of an in-between stage. And, and I guess it's because comic movies weren't, you know, all that common at this time. And it was kind of before they decided that they were embarrassed by comic book tropes mm. and, you know, they were willing to go with the costume and all of that. And then, you know, we, we had a, a point, you know, in the late, you know, in the nineties and in the two thousands where all of a sudden it was like, no, that's embarrassing. We can't have that. We just, right. you know, we need to all have, everybody should just be in leather and, you know, whatever, uh, and then eventually, I you know, I kind of feel like with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they've decided, no, 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 we can go back to all all the comic kind of looks and everything, and 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 I appreciate that they do. Yeah. Uh, but in this movie, they didn't really have a problem with that, and I think you know this is almost uh, a precursor to what they did in in Dick Tracy, where they mm. tried to make the screen look like the comic book pages. That's one of the things there's a lot of components that goes into what I'm about to say, but like something that really strikes me about this movie to this day is what an absolute confident vision it is. Right. And I mean, with with Tim Burton having made like, Pee Wee, then Beetlejuice, then this, I mean, he's still kind of a, you know, wonky choice for for this movie and, and Beetlejuice, which as much as I, I like Beetlejuice. To me, I always describe it. It feels more like a fun art installation I watch for 90 minutes versus an actual film. You know what I mean? Like, it's just fun stuff to look at for about 90 minutes. But it's it's a crazy, wonky, wobbly movie. And I just I'm just bowled away by just the 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 decisions, you know, like with the 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 goons wearing sort of like 30s suits like you know, pinstripe suits in the in the original audio mix, you know, there was sort of the old 1930s gangster gunfire and the way that the the streets are designed and the music, like it's just a fully formed, confident vision. Well, right? it, it, it feels, feels like almost like I'm sorry. something that would come from someone later in their career. It feels like Burton decided he wanted to be a little anachronistic and not have you be able to decide what era it was taking yeah, place in. Right. You know, is is this the 1930s or is this modern day? And you know, I I can't really tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then they seem to have adopted that for the uh, cartoon that followed. Right. That they didn't you know they didn't want okay. you to be able to really pinpoint exactly when it took place or, or you know if it was a period piece or not. And I think that added to kind of just a mysterious feeling that he created for Gotham city, Mm -hmm. which, which is, I guess the way, you know, it's what I tip my hat to for Burton Burton and what I complain about all the time for Burton. (laughs) Uh, And, and that, that is why, as I started to say earlier, why I've done the 180 and then I did a, I did a 180 again on this because like I said, I loved this when it first came out. I saw it in the movies probably about five times uh, and then as Burton films became more common, uh, that Burton vision just became more, just, just more one-sided. It just became, you know, so, like, like, oh yeah, you could tell this is a Burton movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Almost I, like and, a trope. Yeah. Or so, yeah. So I had like a backlash towards it and, and it was like, I retroactively decided I didn't like it anymore. Uh, until time went by and then, you know, I, I kind of 
viewed it again. Uh, I think it was my son's 10th birthday. Uh, and what I had done was I got a, you know, this was before the big screen TVs, TVs were quite as uh, common as they are now. And for his birthday, you know, we had a bunch of his friends over and we had, you know, all sorts of things going on. And then once it settled down a little bit, I, I had gotten a movie screen and a projector and we were, and we, we showed this movie to the kids. Uh, yeah. And, and we made it like it was in the movies. You know, we made popcorn for them and all of that. Uh, and I think that's when I, I decided, you know what, I, it's okay for me to like this again. Hmm. And, and what, what is it? What, what do you think about it on that viewing? What uh, returned? You know, that you had let go of for a little while. I think it's hard to, to really put my finger totally on it, but I think I was able to view it more in a vacuum by itself and and mm -hmm. somehow close my mind to what came afterwards. Yeah. Because I, I think, you know, Burton became, well, while he, in this and in Beetlejuice and in Pee Wee's and even Edward Scissorhands, you know, he was kind of a visionary doing things that nobody else had done. Mm -hmm. And then it just felt like after that, I, I, you know, I think Sleepy Hollow was the one that kind of tipped the scales for me the other way. Uh, it just felt like, you know, like he was just doing the same thing over and over again, and he stopped being a visionary. Mm. So now I needed to be able to look at this on its own and not take into account, you know, the entire uh, filmography of Burton. Sure, sure. I, I like Wes Anderson, but I, I can imagine someone maybe like feeling a certain way about Rushmore when it came out because it was like, what is this? But then if you grow a little weary of the things you can come to expect from a Wes Anderson fan, I can imagine then it makes you look at that film potentially different if you were to grow weary of it. I, yeah. I think it's kind of what you're. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. You know, that, that's that's kind of the way it worked for me. So now, you know, and, and then I, I watched it again actually a couple of weeks ago because pulling back the curtain we were going to do this a couple of weeks ago and then i think one time brian couldn't make it and then another time i couldn't make it and another time zachy couldn't make it so it took us a little while to <laughs> to get to this point where we could do this uh so it's been a couple of weeks since i did my rewatch but i enjoyed the rewatch very much there are yeah. aspects of it that i still look at and see as a bit self-indulgent uh, and and i know if I remember right, when I've heard you guys talking about this, I don't think it bothered you. But I really kind of felt like uh, the whole Prince soundtrack was yeah. was was a you know a, a square peg in a round hole. I, I just didn't think it it really was needed in the movie at all. Yeah, I actually I'm kind of curious to hear Zachy speak to that because I know I've I'll say my opinion, uh, but I'm curious as far as the songs. Yeah, I guess as, they're, as they're they inclusion are, in the movie. Credits, yeah, yeah it's not a film, right? Not a matter of just you know putting on a, a on a CD and listening to them or something like that. Just you know, as they fit into the movie, did you feel that they fit? Did you feel that they belong? Did you feel like there was you know a, a natural chemistry that that allowed them to exist there, or did they feel forced? Because mm -hmm. to me, they felt forced. You know, I, as this was my first exposure to Michael Keaton, it was also my first exposure to Prince. So I, I have to admit, I took a lot of it at face value. Uh, admittedly, those songs are not things that I, I've listened to outside of the movie. So I'm not like, oh, I want to, you know, like put on Siri, play Party Man or whatever. But um, in the movie, I just I just accept it as part of it. You know what I mean? Like I. I can't even imagine those songs not being in it because that's that's the experience. I think that's exactly the same experience I had because I didn't I mean yeah, like I said I was 9 so I wasn't super well versed with Prince and so this is yeah, probably 
my first exposure to him. So it was just a part of the tapestry. And, you know, and I think maybe if it even sounded more synthy or something or even a bit more 80s. I mean, Prince kind of kept that sound throughout most of his career. So it just has a, to me at least, to my ear, a bit of, more of a timeless quality. But I can imagine if it had some sort of boo-wee-you-wee-you-wee, like sort of 80s <laughs> thing, like maybe it would stand out a little bit more these days. But um, yeah, it's just something I've always accepted in the film. So it doesn't, it didn't never really popped out to me. Okay. But I can understand that. I've heard other people say that. Yeah, it, like I said, to me, it, it felt like it was a little forced in there, and and and, and you're you're right, it was forced in there. So your, yeah, your instincts right. are not wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I, I could see where you would feel the same way, but I do not about the Elfman score, because I mm. do think the Elfman score, well, well he, I, I feel like he's had a similar path in many ways to uh, Burton, in that. There was a stretch mm-hmm. there where you'd hear it and you'd say, "Okay, that's that's another Elfman one," <laughs> you know. Yeah. You, you know, it would just stand out as being him, which I think he's kind of gotten by that. I don't remember which one, what movie it was that that I just recently saw. It might have been Doctor Strange. Did he do Strange, the score yeah. for that? Uh, yeah. And and it didn't it didn't have that same obviously Danny Elfman score. Uh, so I think he's kind of gotten by that a little bit. Uh, but on the other hand, I do feel like this was the this it, it wasn't his first score, but this was still kind of original at the time. So again, if I can watch it in a vacuum, I'm better than if I think about his entire career. Yeah, that's interesting because I, for me, again, I mean, with this being a lot of firsts, really, for me, and I mean, I think John Williams was probably the only other composer I knew at the time, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, listening to his records and whatnot, but this, I definitely had the the cassette tape. And, you know, not the Prince one, but the the Danny Elfman one that I listened to and I know note for note. And I think I I totally understand that whole uh, feeling about Elfman almost becoming like a parody of himself down the line. And maybe he did. But like I've I've never minded the sort of madman circus sound as long as he was, you know, it's, it's sort of like how like Metallica sounds like Metallica and, you know, like Prince sounds like Prince and what like. I didn't mind if he sounded like himself as long as he was doing interesting things with each film with that voice. And certainly with this being one of his earlier scores, I mean, I think this is one he this and Edward Scissorhands, I think, are pretty much like his his peaks. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. But, you know, I, I've often said when I talk about score, movie scores, uh, very often the best scores are ones that can affect your mood without you being conscious of, of it at the time. Mm-hmm. And what I go back to is, and again, you know, this is the benefit of being a little older than you guys. I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark in a movie theater. And I mean, can you come up with a much better score than Raiders of the Lost Ark? I know. But at the time I saw the movie, I wasn't thinking about the score in the slightest because right. the action just pulled me in and the music really just kind of helped to keep that mood going without making me conscious of it. It wasn't until later on that I that I heard it and I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Uh, you know, I, I think John Williams, for the most part, had has had that skill through his entire career. You know, I, I've, I've listened to different scores that he had and they all, you know, very often are very memorable. And yet, despite the fact that they're memorable, they're not calling attention to themselves during the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, in this one, yeah. 
I think the score did call attention to itself a little bit, and I think part of that was because of the inclusion of the Prince songs, and it just made you more conscious of the music as it was going on. But if if I separate it and I just focus on the Elfman music, I think it really created the mood that Burton yeah. was trying to create in the movie. So I, I would agree with you that this was, you know, this is among his peak uh, compose, com- compositions. It is amazing for as bombastic as it is that it really does serve perfectly as atmosphere to what's going on. Maybe that speaks to how bombastic the visuals are as well. I don't know. But again, you know, like like you know, to compare it to John Williams, who I think is kind of almost universally looked at as the best movie score composer in history. Yeah. Uh, he's he's written so many that are incredibly memorable when you hear them. But when you watch the movies, you're not always conscious of it, mm-hmm. which I think is the, the perfect marriage of the music and the movie. And, right. I, and I, I think, like I said, to a large extent, I think in this movie, I think Elfman did it. Yeah, yeah. Zeki, what, what's I, your your Elfman feelings? Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I think I think he he sometimes feels more into it than others, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I, I, I mean, I. I like that his music has an identity. I mean, you hear mm-hmm. a few notes of, like my kids recognize Daniel from the music, mm-hmm. you know. And granted, they're my kids, so they're slightly <laughs> they're <laughs> slightly mutant-ish. But but I, I think certainly, at least for me, I mean, I when I think of a theme for Batman, I think of Danny Elfman's theme, even though there have been several, and many of them have been very good, but. Uh, to me, he created a musical identity for the character uh, that 30 years later, I still that that's what I consider, you know, the the what what, pump, what pops into my mind, you know, when I see the character. Well, this this theme almost says like it, it almost comes out and says dark, mysterious, brooding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like, like like you can't hear it and not think of those kind of moods. And, and it's it's perfectly <laughs> fitting to what you get in the movie, or at least what you're getting and, from and, the character. And and if I can, uh, you know, go back to what you you know you mentioned Dick Tracy earlier. Here you've got you've got Batman '89, you got Dick Tracy there a year apart, and to me they sound very distinct. Like I don't hear, I can't confuse the Dick Tracy theme with the Batman theme. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that was a critique of Elfman certainly at the time. Oh, it all sounds the same, and I never I didn't I didn't feel that way then. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. That's a great forgotten score, Dick Tracy. It is. Yes, it is. And I, I think, I think they all sound the same. Is kind of shorthand for saying he's got a distinct sound. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like you say. You know, you hear it and you you can tell. Oh yeah, this is an Elfman score. Uh, it's either an Elfman score or somebody trying to imitate an Elfman score. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely got its own identity. Uh, and there have been occasions, and I'm trying to think off the top of my head, and I'm coming up blank, so I apologize for say, saying something without being able to give an example. But there have been occasions where, like you know, you said, where he it felt like he wasn't quite as into it, and it was more like, okay, I'll just throw the usual, you know, usual stylings onto a piece of paper, and we'll move forward from there. Uh, yeah. And those are the ones that'll probably have hurt his reputation a little bit, and I think it goes hand in hand with what we were saying about Tim Burton. Sure. The, yeah. the difference is 
I feel like Elfman has kind of ridden the wave and come out of it. This movie has ridden the wave and come out of it. But I don't remember the last thing that I saw that I liked by Tim Burton. I know it's he's kind of gone through this thing. I mean, he came out of the gate. I love Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I mean, it's truly one of my favorite comedies of all time. And, and I'm going to interrupt and say, if anybody wants to hear me and Brian talking about Pee Wee's yeah. Big Adventure, just go back into the archives of this show and you can hear us uh, waxing poetic about it. <laughs> think I'll uh, think I'll say it's Jaws. Tune in, and find out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but he just had such a crazy – I mean, like Beetlejuice, what an entirely unique vision. And then this Batman film and then Edward Scissorhands. And, and you know, I just saw that one again recently and was like – I like teared up at the end. I've seen it a million times. I was like, this movie is so good and so original. And then it, it feels like he got uh, – I mean, as one – does i guess to some degree it was like well he makes bigger and bigger movies and then in doing that when more money's at stake it's it's sort of for disney and so it's it became like he became like a like an instagram filter where it was like alice in wonderland <laughs> with the tim burton filter you know and like and i i wish and and i enjoyed some of those to some degree you, you not liked, all uh, miss miss peregrine's uh i uh, did that one did it, yeah and, and that's funny because that one didn't make any dent at all <laughs> it felt right. Um, whereas Alice in Wonderland, I think, was like a billion dollar movie. But uh, yeah, Miss Peregrine, I thought was really fun. And but but I want to see him. What's in his head? I want to see another original idea out of his head. And him, he doesn't need the budget. You know, do something under fifty million or something. And what do you want to do? Like that's that's something I'd really love to see from him. Well, I'm just I'm just looking at his filmography as a director. So we have Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman. Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns. Now, I would like to bother you guys to do Batman Returns down the line, so I don't want to go too much into that if if I can somehow yeah. fool you into doing that. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but you know, I, I, I have my – I go back and forth on that one a little bit. Then we have Ed Wood, which was – I think that was him still saying, hey, you know what? I don't care how much money you give me. I'm going to make the movie I want to make, <laughs> which, which is still good. I'm still happy with him at that point. That's 1994. Mm-hmm. Then we got to Mars Attacks, which people love – but I didn't. Quite frankly, the the joke was lost on me. It, it, I didn't find yeah, it nearly as amusing I, yeah. as p- other people I did. Uh, Feels like something I should love. Yeah, but yeah, I don't exactly. connect with. Yeah, and then when people tell me how much they love it, I'm like, you know, I feel bad that I don't. <laughs> I know. Then we had Sleepy Hollow, and that was really where he kind of, in my mind, totally jumped the shark. That was where where I I started doing my retroactive. I don't like the movies. I I don't even like the movies I like anymore. <laughs> Right. Uh, that was Planet of the Apes for me. And then he did Planet <laughs> yeah, of the right, Apes. Right. And, and I, I remember, you know, Zachy and I, the first time you and I had a chance to talk, you were saying kind of like, you know, you had to squint and say, yeah, I kind of like it. Uh, yep. and, 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 and I kind of felt the same way. But but ultimately, when I walked out, I was like, I, I just can't. I can't. <laughs> you know, yeah. although yeah. I did an episode on that and I did a rewatch on it. And again, because I stopped being quite as down on Burton, it wasn't as bad as i wanted to make it because i i i walked into that wanting to give it a jaws four uh <laughs> but i gave it a jaws three because you know was, there were things about it that were okay the vision wasn't quite <laughs> yeah. as horrible you know I, I, brian and i did a, a commentary for that a couple of years ago too i don't think i've listened yeah, to I that forget. i'm gonna need to listen yeah to that. and i know i'm kind of with you where where it's not a movie that I feel compelled to revisit very often, but I can certainly appreciate. It's got a great Elfman score. The makeup effects are fantastic. Yeah. 
And and perhaps most importantly for me, it's not the final statement on that franchise. Yeah. And so it it to me it's just a bump in the road as opposed to the period of, at the end of the sentence. You know? But at that at that from that point on, I can say, based basically from everything after Ed Wood, there's nothing that really lands very high in my opinion. Big Fish was I, I really like Big Fish. I need to see that again. I don't you know I don't think yeah. I've ever sat and watched that so maybe maybe I would think more highly of that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it's crazy. It's almost twenty years old. I didn't realize that, but wow. I, it's certainly like I'm. 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 I'm not. I would not consider myself a Tim Burton fan per se, but I'm. You know, I, I can certainly appreciate his movies when he does them well. I just his sort of specific eccentricities don't really speak to me. Uh, I just associate them with like those goth girls from high school that were like a lot, you know, um, but. So, so I'm sort of like when he gets a little too too Burtony, I, I tend to tap out. So like Selene Todd didn't do anything for me. Um, yeah, I don't know. Dark I Shadows, know. Dark Shadows, I didn't. Dark like Shadows, that. yeah. But isn't it funny? These are the most recent, and they're the ones that I'm forgetting the most. <laughs> yeah, well, I told you. <laughs> you know, see, I, I think what I would say is I'm a fan of his talent, but yeah, but I, you know, or I'm I'm. Uh, appreciative of his talent i can't deny it exists but i feel like his vision has narrowed over the years yeah i, I mean willy wonka or charlie and chocolate factory i i i loathed that movie i really didn't like it at all yeah yeah well that one that one has the uh distinction of me not liking that or the the original movie either Oh, okay. <laughs> Which I know people swear they love the original. Oh, like adore that movie. I've I've never I I'm like it's fine. Yeah. Like I don't know. I I've never understood sort of yeah the the whole sort of adoration for and it. And I but... love Gene Wilder, but it it, mm-hmm. it just doesn't do it for me. Yeah. It never has. So whatever. You know, it's funny. The the last one I remember seeing of his Tim Burton's that is is Dumbo. And I think I watched it on an airplane. And it was one of those things where I was like, man, this is just such diluted Dumbo. It's such diluted Burton. It's such diluted. Th- like, it just was such a nothing burger, which is so disappointing. Mm. So, yeah, I'd rather I'd rather him. Uh, yeah, I wanted to go back to his his weird spot or, or whatever it is that's on his mind. It's not like he has to repeat what he felt in his 20s, you know, what? What's Tim Burton want to say now? I'm, I'm curious. I think he needs, because I should decide what Burton needs to do, but I, I think he, <laughs> he needs just like something to really inspire him to try and be original. He's mm-hmm. He's got certainly, like I said, he's certainly got the talent to put original stuff out there, but he, he needs to do something new and different that isn't going to just be on the screen and you say, oh yeah, that's another one of those Burton movies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because that, you know, remember like the funnier die days, you know, where it was he became one of those whenever they do the the director pastiche, like Wes Anderson or, you know, where they, they put a movie through that lens. Right. And it's just like, well, they just center the frame and it's a Wes Anderson movie. And then with Tim Burton, just put black and white spirals everywhere. And it, and it's true. I mean, he he does do that. But like, yeah, I'd like to see him. And it's fine if he incorporates that in the in the, the sides, you know, side of the stage. But yeah, I. I want to see, you know, another loner character with big floppy hair, <laughs> like, you know, feeling alienated in suburbia or something. I don't know. Whatever it is. This is this is very amusing to me. I In my Facebook memories for today, 
No. Exactly 10 years ago. I'm assuming this is when Dark Shadows came out. I, I, I'm, I posted, I, I just saw this on Twitter. Uh, and I'm quoting somebody. I see Tim Burton's made his film again. <laughs> I can't, exactly 10 years which, ago today. Which is, wow. which is really totally taking our critique and putting it in one sentence. <laughs> Perfect. So, so. Well, no, I, I have a question bringing it back to Batman then, because clearly Batman Returns is Burton Unleashed, right? Yes. Um, we get a lot more of the, the spirals and craziness and whatnot. But so I don't, you know, much like Star Wars, I'm so immersed in the history and the, of the making of it and everything. And I, I as big a fan as I am of Batman, I can't say the same about that. Or maybe I, there just isn't as much out there. But this does feel very Burton-y, but it does also not feel as Burton-y as Batman Returns. And I sort of wonder what that battle was between Warner Brothers and him. Actually, I'm not so sure there was a battle so much as, you know, this this was his first truly big budget movie. I mean, he, yeah. you know, I mean, Beetlejuice, he, I think he had a decent budget, but, you know, not, the budget on this was $48 million, which at the time was incredible. Uh, so I think, you know, at that point, he, he didn't have the, reputation to just say hey i'm doing it my way he could mm -hmm. he you know he he could put his vision into place but he still had to toe the line somewhat when this sure. made according to uh according to uh, wikipedia 411 million dollars now in order to come back and do batman returns he said <laughs> i'm doing it my way and they couldn't say a mm -hmm. damn thing about it yeah i think that's really what it came down to and i do believe you know, looking back at this with hindsight, that those constraints served him well. Uh, I was listening to you guys talk recently. I don't think it was this week's episode where you did uh, Doctor Strange. I think it was the week before. Um, and I, I don't remember who you were talking about, but Zachy, you said something to the effect of that sometimes limitations are a friend to the director because they forced yeah. them to be original. And I think that may be the case here. I think the limitations that he might have had mm. imposed on him forced him to find ways to put his vision into play in just a little bit more of a mainstream way, but still mm. let his vision come out. And I think the combination worked well in hindsight. Yeah, and, and in fact, we, we did in, in this most recent episode, because um, we were discussing the trailer for Thor, Love and Thunder, and uh, we were talking about, like, this is Taika Waititi Unleashed, mm -hmm. and we were sort of positing whether that'll end up being a good thing or a bad thing. And we, I don't, we didn't land anywhere on that, but I did pose that question. I used, I used Burton on Batman as an example, and Joel Schumacher on Batman as an example. <laughs> Uh, Michael Bay with Transformers, you know, I mean, that sense of because Burton's talked about making the first Batman. He said it was not a particularly pleasant experience uh, working with um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, John Peters. Right. Mm. Uh, John Peters ha was nowhere involved with with the sequel. And I think that was mm. part of the calculus to get Burton to come back. He's like, I'll do it. But I don't want I don't want that guy near me. <laughs> and. And and not to say that John Peters is any kind of a positive influence on a film, but yeah, I think, I think, I think certainly with Batman Returns, it, it's much it's much more polarizing than the first film because it's it's much more plugged into his particular uh, 
you know, his particular ethos and you're either on board with that or you're not. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. And again, like I said, I don't want to go too far into that one because I would like to cover that. I was I was contemplating, should I should I make this easy on you guys and just say, you know what, let's do Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin all as one show. Uh, <laughs> or, should, or should we do them all individually? And then I guess we can we can mull that over later. But right right now I'm inclined yeah. to say, yeah, as long as I can keep bothering you and as long as we yeah. keep doing this, I'd, I'm rather, fine. I'd, rather, I'm fine with I'd rather spread them out if we can. If, if, if you listen to the movie film show, you know that Brian and I have no problem talking about Batman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that's ever the problem. The, the biggest problem is just finding the time when we're all three available and uh, – you know, able to do this, which, you know, I, again, I appreciate that you guys make the time. Uh, so let's get back to the casting a little bit on this. Looking at Jack Nicholson as the Joker at the time, it was like, Oh my God, what a performance. No one is ever going to do the Joker better than that. Uh, <laughs> which, which is something we've heard since then. Uh, but when, when you think about it and I think, I may have heard you guys say this in the past again. Uh, there really is no nuance to the performance. It's he's, he's really the same guy before he's the Joker and after the Joker. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and there's, there's really, you know, there's really no point where he immerses himself in it. One of the things I love about the Joker, and I thought it was a great thing in the dark Knight, is you really don't know where he came from or how he became what he is. Mm. You know, he gives like three different origin stories in that movie because even he doesn't remember how he became who he is or, you know, in theory. Uh, I like when the Joker is, is portrayed as somebody who you really just don't know. You know, he just is. Mm -hmm. And you don't know what his backstory is because his backstory will tend to humanize him. And we don't want sure, to humanize sure. him. You know, so in that respect, I think there was a, a little bit of a failure to kind of capture the character. And then to have him be the one who killed his parents, I've complained about that in, you know, uh, you know, with like Spider-Man 3 and other things where they just make the world too small when they do things like that. There was mm -hmm. no reason for that. That's always been interesting to me because I, I guess similar to, I guess, like the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi or something, right? Where I was just, those three movies existed you know, for me all at once. So I was like, okay, this one's got Jawas, this one's got this, and they're the Ewoks, you know? But then I've heard people like, oh, I hate the Ewoks. And I had to be like, wait, really? Why? <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. And I, I think for me, yeah, with, with this movie, I saw it at such an age that I was like, all right. Like, wow, damn, that was the Joker. He killed his parents, you know? And But then, you know, over the years, I've heard that people didn't like that. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I think I, for me, it was always okay because I thought, this is this one, right? And then when there's the Nolan one, there's that's that one. And then when there's the, you know, Robert Pat, that's Robert Pattinson. Maybe it's not my favorite one, but I like it enough that that it's good enough as its own one. So I've been I've been okay with that. But uh, was that like when you saw that in the theater at the time? Were you did you have like a, a reaction to that? No, no. Yeah, <laughs> it was after the fact when I thought about it. Uh, yeah, okay. You know as. The, the big thing for me is if I can, if I can immerse myself into a movie, uh, then I try not to think about it too much. I try to just like let it take me for a ride, which mm -hmm. this one did. Uh, so it, it probably it was probably on the second or third viewing that I said, huh, 
So, so he killed the parents, huh? <laughs> like it just, you know, it's like, so, so, so what are they like? Only eight people in Gotham City? What's, you know, what's the deal? Uh, I was gonna say that I can appreciate the way that you worded it though, especially like just that it makes the world small. I, I, I can, I can appreciate that for sure. Yeah. So, so I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't like that they did that with his character. Uh, I, I didn't see the, you know, and it's, it's tough to go in to compare it to other movies but when in the dark knight uh i liked the way the joker's motivation was just to create chaos Mm. and this is again you know looking at this with hindsight this joker in particular seemed to have more concrete plans Mm. and motivations as to where he was going uh which is probably more true to what we saw in the comics at the time but i like the other aspect better so it's, it's a hindsight thing that that I kind of look at Jack Nicholson's performance now, and I still enjoy it for what it is, but I try not to think of him quite as being the Joker that I know as well as I do from comics. Mm. Yeah, he gets he gets flustered in this, <laughs> and he definitely has plans. He has costumes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's much. And you know, I recently did a review on the Batman, which has not been posted yet, and. Uh, as, as we record this, it hasn't been posted. It may be posted before this, though. Uh, and and what, one of my comments was that the Riddler in that movie doesn't seem anything like the Riddler that I think of. Mm-hmm. But he was still a good character. Yeah. He just yeah. wasn't the character that I've come to know over the years. Yeah. And I kind of look at Jack Nicholson's Joker that way now. Yeah, you know, and I... Just one of the little nuances or aspects that they gave him that I did enjoy was how he would put on sort of fleshy colored makeup for certain scenarios. Mm-hmm. And it was just that was sort of his disguise. And, you know, then there's that moment where they're at the uh, the museum and she splashes the water on his face and it just looks horrifying with the streaks of, you know, flesh <laughs> coming down his face. And it's kind of a fun I, detail. I, I like the way he puts the fleshy makeup on, but really doesn't pay any attention to try and keep it in place. You know, he'll just rub his hands across his face and wipe it off without thinking. Uh, right, you know, right, right. I, I kind of like that. That he's, you know, that that just shows that you know his lack of his lack of attention to detail, which does make him he more Joker like to me. Yeah, you, you have to appreciate the 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 craft involved in mm. applying Joker makeup and then flesh colored makeup, such that Jack Nicholson can wipe it off. But not wipe it all up. Like, I mean, you know. Like yeah, yeah, and it's in the pre-CGI <laughs> days, so you couldn't really, yeah. you know, do what you, you can, can touch now. it up. So yeah, yeah, you, you do have to be impressed with that a little bit. Uh, I love how he also has like all these Acme products, you know, like sort of like a, a Joy Buzzer, you know, a killer Joy Buzzer, and that that boxing glove that he punches the TV with, and you know, it's all these goofy things. Uh, and you know, I, and I get a kick out of some of the silly moments you know when he pulls out the gun it's like what is it like eight feet yeah. eight feet long uh right. you know little little things like that that did make me laugh i mean there's moments where you know it's also like you could groan a little bit like when the bat wing goes up into this to the moon and creates a silhouette of the bat symbol <laughs> uh you know it's like okay that's that's maybe taking it too far uh, perhaps nine-year-old Brian is still like, whoa, cool. <laughs> now one, one thing that I've heard you guys criticize a little bit that I really didn't mind. So this, this is maybe a good topic huh. to bring up is the presence of Robert Wall in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I kind of felt like, you know, at this this was in an era. It was a different era as far as these that, you know, he was there to be kind of our our eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he was the, the, you know, the guy who was going to kind of explain what's going on to us a little bit. Uh, and, and I, you know, it didn't bother me. I, I, you know, I remember him from Bull Durham uh, and, and I kind of like him. He was, you know, he was a comedian at the time. And uh, I know he had uh, that show Arliss, which I never really watched. Uh, yeah. But, I, you know, I definitely was familiar with him from Bull Durham and I, I thought he was great in that. So I, I was kind of alone. I was alone for the ride with him in, in this. But uh, I think if, if I remember right, I think you called him like the single most useless character. <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> I was gonna say. That, that sounds like a Zaki. <laughs> um, and you know what? I stand by it. What the hell? I'm going to dig in my heels. I'm going to make this my hill to die. <laughs> the, the, um, the, the Robert Wolf <laughs> battle. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I remember is, and Brian, I don't know if you remember this, our very, very, very first episode, we did Bat- Batman 89. Yeah. And and I was like, you know, since this movie came out, a lot of the cast has passed away. Pat Hingle is gone. Michael Guff is gone. William Hootkins is gone. And Robert Wall was on Arliss. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a funny joke. But anyway. Um... <laughs> now, now Pat, Pat Hingle is worth mentioning to me. Uh, I've always heard that he, as a man, was very, very popular with his co-stars, with directors that, that you know, they, they really just loved the guy. Uh, hmm. But for whatever reason, he never really appealed to me as an actor. Uh, yeah, oh, I agree with you. I, I, agree with I, I, I thought you were going to say as uh, Commissioner Gordon, but yeah. Well, I... yeah, and, and well, that that's where that carries through to. <laughs> he never really appealed to me as an actor, and I don't know why they they made him Commissioner Gordon. I don't. I don't see. I, it. Yeah. I, I, he, I would he, like to read was... the screenplay and see what his description is in the action. I yeah. I have a hard time kind of understanding what they were going for with him. He just feels like another guy on the side. You don't feel there's any connection yeah. between him and Batman, which is what mm-hmm. you ne- absolutely need to feel. Uh, he he, you know, except for the minute when, except for the point when he gets the phone call uh, about you know what's going on at the. Uh, the chemical plant there's never a point where you feel like he's a useful police commissioner yeah. i agree so you know and it, you know some some of it's the acting and some of it is the you know the the writing I, I would imagine because i just don't i just don't see him making much of a presentation in this at all and i don't see him being given i don't i don't see a much better actor doing better with it anyway right right I mean, I, I think that uh, to to a large extent, uh, Pat Hingle was playing a version of Neil Hamilton's Gordon from the 1960s TV show. Mm. Because, I you know, I mean, at this point now in 2022, we've got we've got Gary Oldman, we've got Jeffrey Wright, J.K. Simmons, even Ben McKenzie uh, on the on the Gotham TV show have have sort of defined what people think about about Jim Gordon and he is just as much of a hero as Batman mm-hmm. and and yet at the time this movie came out for the mainstream audience Neil Hamilton was commissioner Gordon he's the guy who him and and Chief O'Hara you know oh Begora what are we going to do you know <laughs> <laughs> Saints and, and so, be praised 
Yeah, it was, <laughs> it, 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 they were just befuddled and and they picked yeah. up the phone. And so so Pat Hingle was now, now that said, uh, when you look at Pat Hingle, uh, uh, the characterization he is given across the four movies, I mean, he, you know, he, he's like Hercule Poirot in the first one compared to where he's at in the fourth one. <laughs> Fair enough. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, my my familiarity with him otherwise is mostly in Clint Eastwood movies. Mm. You know, he was in uh, Hang 'Em High. He was in uh, Sudden Impact, uh, and I think he was in one other that I could that I I can't even remember the name of offhand. Uh, I just saw him as a barkeep. He, he, he in was in Quick and the Dead, right? Quick right? and the Dead, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he's it's a very small role, but actually I thought he it, it that suited him well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I had seen kind of a pushover barkeep. I had seen the Quick and the Dead when it first first came out on VHS, so uh, yeah. my memories of it are somewhat limited. Although I do recall you talking about it recently. The, the, the yeah, big, just, the big I memory I have of that is uh, somebody being shot, and the camera angle was from behind him, and you could see through him. Yes, that's yes. that's yep. the biggest thing I remember from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just recently saw Pat Hingle in an episode of uh, The Old Mission Impossible. Oh. He, was in like, he was in like the first season. And the funny thing is, I bet you he looked the same age as he did in this. I, I, was, <laughs> I was about to say, you, you, it could have been 30 years before Batman or 30 days and you wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think he aged at any point in his career. He was born that age. He died that age. Yeah. <laughs> Wilford Brimley. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, another actor who I don't know that he really brought a lot to the movie as far as acting goes, but I got a big kick out of him. And I just I don't know. There's something about everything he's in. I like him in is Jack Palance. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, like, I, I don't I don't know that there was a lot there, but just his line deliveries and everything. And, and I, I, I always get a kick out of him. So I, yeah. I was fine with with that. Hey, you know, he just he he has a way of commanding the screen whenever he's on it. Exactly that. Like it doesn't matter what they're playing. Like they bring whatever their essence is, and that's enough. You know, like they can they can elevate anything just by whatever whatever it is that they bring. Yeah, and he's I would say the same because he's otherwise if you just cast some sort of person who wasn't as memorable, you might even forget that <laughs> part of the movie. You know, but. Just the way that he talks, the you know the whole you are my number one, you know kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Then, and then you get to have Jack Nicholson mock that later. Yes, <laughs> which which I think was yeah, a nice you know, touch. I I knew Jack Palance at that time primarily from Ripley's Believe It or Not, uh, which he hosted in the eighties. Really? Yeah, yeah, and and you know they used to show that on TV in Saudi Arabia, so that I just knew him from that. I didn't know him as a movie actor. I knew him as the Ripley's Believe It or Not guy. Oh, funny! And so I was just tickled by by that. I was like, "Hey, I'm, like he was probably honestly the one actor in this movie I knew, like him and Billy D. Williams." <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think it's it's almost universal that we all lament the fact that Billy D. Williams didn't get to play Two Face. Oh, I know, geez. such a shame. Totally. Yeah. It's weird to think too that I mean, what is that? Uh, six years removed from Return of the Jedi. I mean, it's so close. It's like weird for my my brain to reconcile that, like that timeline. Pretty fresh off that. I I I enjoy his delivery in the movie too, with the ghosts and goblins, and you know, I, yeah. I, 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 I thought you know he he was he was doing his best to 
chew a little scenery himself in in mm-hmm. a relatively small part. Uh, so it would have been nice to see him take on the role where, you know, now he's going to really chew the scenery. Uh, yeah, they did him dirty. They did him dirty. I think so. And and while I feel that Tommy Lee Jones is a really good actor, and and we'll eventually <laughs> talk about that movie, he 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 really mailed it in in that movie. Uh, you know, I, one thing I'll say about Tommy Lee Jones, I know we're going to talk about it later, but as far as what he does as Two Face, I can't sanction that buffoonery. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, the problem is Tommy Lee Jones played. Uh, which uh, all of a sudden I'm just drawing a blank on the names, but he he was one of, one of the two main characters in Lonesome Dove, which is one of my favorite things ever. He, yeah, play, so he, good. he played Woodrow Call. Like it took me a minute to remember the name, uh, and I mean he was so so good in that that I hate ever seeing him mail in a part. <laughs> you know, uh, sorry, this is a tangent, but speaking of Lonesome Dove, I just rewatched uh, Streets of Laredo mm-hmm. with uh, James Garner. Uh, we- with James Garner, oh my God, it's so good. Had you ever have I you ever, have you that. ever read uh, the books? I have. I've only seen the the miniseries. I I watched uh, I watched Return to Lonesome Dove, which I did not like at all. That's that John Voight, Voight yeah. As, yeah, as Woodrow Call, and then and uh, my understanding is McMurtry, you know, he he ignores Return to Lonesome Dove, and and uh, Streets of Laredo is like his true sequel. Yes. Yeah, because I read I read those books when they came out, and uh, the fascinating thing, and I, I don't want to go too far on the tangent, but the fascinating <laughs> thing is, before Lonesome Dump was a book, it was a screenplay, and okay. it, the plan was the part that Tommy Lee Jones played, John Wayne was supposed to play it, the part that oh, Robert wow. Duval played, Jimmy Stewart was supposed to play, and the part mm. that Robert Urich played, Henry Fonda was supposed to play. I can totally see all three of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, Brian, I find have that you seen to be fascinating. No, no. It, you got you got a great miniseries waiting. Yeah, Brian, I cannot that. recommend it high enough. It is all right. Uh, where where the Godfather is my favorite movie of all time. Lonesome Dove is my favorite TV production of all time. Wow. Okay. It's, it's, I mean, yeah, it's at yeah. it's at that level as far as I'm concerned. That's high praise. <laughs> so Nick. <laughs> so, so walking away from Lonesome Dove slowly because <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we'll, we'll do, uh, otherwise we're never gonna talking Lonesome Dove soon maybe well I, 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 I did do an episode I did do talk. an episode on Lonesome Dove early on in this show oh uh, but when you do see if and when you do see it I want to hear your take on it okay yeah and I'll I'll definitely look that up then I, I want to hear it too yeah. so uh, anybody else in the cast that stood out to you guys. Michael Go. What did you talk about? Oh, yes. Michael Go, what I recently said after seeing The Batman is in every live action, actually, and the cartoon, I have yet to have a performance of Alfred that I don't like. I agree. Every one of them just embodies the character in a different way, but Mm -hmm. every one of them is like, you know, every one of them is special in their own way to me. Uh, Michael Go seems to take on kind of he, what he does is he takes the character from the 66 series in my mind but he just makes him serious mm. you know he he's not yeah. he's not the uh you know the aide that that alfred will be in some of the other movies where where he's taking a real active role in batman's uh 
you know, activities. He's more just kind of a confidant and, you know, an enabler. I feel like that, that, that fits his role more. Uh, other than, you know, wanting to smack him for telling Kim Basinger that, that Bruce Wayne is uh, <laughs> Batman, uh, you know, other than that, he's, you know, he does take on a parental role with him. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy his performance very much. I do remember as a kid having that feeling like, what? You can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) It was shocking to me. See, the thing about Batman and Bruce Wayne, and then we'll move over to Michael Keaton a little bit, is where, like, I, I compare it to Superman all the time. Clark Kent is the true identity, and Superman is the one he puts on for people. Uh, you know, he, the, the, the farm boy who's kind of innocent and all of that, that's really who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Batman is the true identity and Bruce Wayne is what he puts on for people. Right. And I feel like each movie or each actor that's played the part, well, not each one. I, I, <laughs> I think Christian Bale, Michael Keaton, and now uh, Robert Pattinson have all kind of taken on that attitude. I, I don't know about Clooney and... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm Kilmer. Kilmer. I don't know that they really, the two of them really did it, but uh, I feel like Keaton. There was a certain subtlety to his performance, where that was what he was doing. When he was Bruce Wayne, he wasn't comfortable in his own skin, and I feel like that that he performed it that way. And then when he puts mm-hmm. on the costume and he's out there fighting crime, that's the real him. Right. And I, right. For example, I mean, when he's at the, the, the long dining room table, he doesn't have the sense for, uh, until much, much later that this is awkward. This is an awkward date. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that, that's him performing. Or, or, and, and but then when he goes down, he gets called down uh, after the phone call, like you said, that Gordon receives. And he sits comfortably in the Batcave in the chair viewing. Exactly. And that's what he really wants to be doing, viewing the monitors. Or, or the scene, you know, when, when the Joker confronts them in the apartment and he starts talking about, you know, let's get nuts. Mm. Like you yeah. can see, like as he's giving his story, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, right, like he, right. he, he's got this this social awkwardness about him. Yeah. And and I just think that, but you know, like he plays it really well. Uh, and you know, I I think time has told us that Michael Keaton is a much better actor than people thought he was going to mm-hmm. be when he was only known for his comedic roles and he was cast as Bruce Wayne. And I love that through the years to this day, he still seems very proud of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've seen, yeah. he gives uh, college commencement addresses and he'll end them by saying I'm Batman. And <laughs> on SNL, he did a whole like I'm Batman thing. And recently, and I even, uh, uh, my fiance told me a story secondhand from a friend of hers where uh, their Uber driver was telling a story about Michael reaching out and wanting to be picked up to go somewhere that was really far. So they had to communicate over the phone. Right. So the Uber driver was like, uh, OK, fine, fine. I'll come get you. Right. So then he goes, picks him up and he goes, Michael. And then uh, Michael Keaton gets in the car and goes, I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's not even for anyone. You know what I mean? That's not on television. That's not, I, I was like, that I, that delights me. I, love I, that. I appreciate but, you know, when actors can appreciate the roles that gave them, you know, mm. the, 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 the standing that they have. I, I mm. am uncomfortable when they, when they become uncomfortable with the, uh, 
parts that they played when they're too serious of an actor to have played Bruce Wayne. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I always love that, you know, Hugh Jackman seems to totally embrace the fact that he's yeah. Wolverine. And any other characters, you know, any other actors that have done the same thing. I, I really enjoy that. You know, you know, when you think about and and the, the Jackman comparison is a good one, right? Like, there's going to be another Wolverine at some point, but Hugh Jackman will always be, he was the first out the shoot. And, and certainly that's Michael Keaton, at least when we think of like modern mm. Batman. And in a, in a broader sense, I mean, he was first out the shoot with sort of the whole superhero movie genre as we have it now. Right. And, and so he gets to own it, you know, and, mm. and he's also had the benefit of, I would imagine, you know, meeting people who were kids when that movie came out and who get to tell them how much that role and that film meant to them, you know? Yeah. And I would imagine that's a nice feeling. Mm hmm. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I'll, I'll never get to know, but, uh, I, I gotta think it's gotta be something that you can always have some pride looking back on and, and knowing that that's gonna, you know, be there after you're long gone. Yeah. Yeah. So anything else about this one that jumps out that we haven't talked about that you think this is what I want to say? <laughs> I don't know if this is what I want to say, but I, <laughs> I, I I do think it's worth mentioning as long as we talk about the cast, the fact that Kim Basinger joined pretty much on a Friday and was shooting on Monday, right? <laughs> because uh, of Sean Young, oh, yeah. who was originally cast as Vicky Vale, but then she had an accident during rehearsal involving For a horse a in a scene that wasn't even in. Yeah, <laughs> didn't even make it in the movie. Um, but I mean, that would be a very different take. I'd have to imagine, you know, they're, they're very different, uh, actors. So just worth throwing out there. I mean, I obviously with seeing it at nine. I was just like, wow, you know, Vicky Vale. <laughs> so, I, mean, See, I, I knew um, her from never say never again at this point. Uh, uh and which, Brian, you haven't gotten to that one yet, right? No, I'm going through all the the yeah, Paul. I'm going through all the Bond movies with my fiance, and we're we're working our way toward that one. Yeah, that that that's one that is for the most part hated, but for whatever reason, still has mm. I have a soft spot for it. Mm. Uh, well, so I, I'm curious to hear what you think about that one. I assume you'll talk about it on movie film when you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been we we keep doing things in between, but yeah, I'm I'm loving it. Every now and then, we both inspiration hits at the same time, we're like. <laughs> and we'll do another bond movie. So. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be curious to hear what you think of it when you get to it. Uh, yeah. The only thing about her, I, I thought she was fine as a love interest for Bruce. I just didn't see her as the get down in the mud, go to uh, some third world nation and take photos. Or yeah. yeah. Like that That just didn't seem, you know, that, that was, to take it to the uh, bond level, that was... Uh, What's her name? Denise Richards being a uh, nuclear physicist. <laughs> Christmas Jones. Christmas Jones, yes. So you'll get there yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, so, but I mean, otherwise she's fine. She's, you know, she was definitely, uh, you know, pretty enough. That's for sure. Uh, you know, and like I said, I, I saw her as fine as a as a uh, romantic dalliance for Bruce Wayne. But beyond that, uh, her interaction with Robert Wall, I thought you know i thought he carried those scenes i agree i agree he, he he bounces well off of her like playing the the sort of frustrated you know 
uh, foil, right? Where she's more interested in Wayne and yeah, he's, you know, it's funny. Yeah. Going back to, to him, uh, Arliss, I don't know why that's the first thing that came to my mind, but <laughs> the Alexander Knox character, I mean, yeah, no, I think he, you know, if they went overboard and we actually spent time with his home life, that might've been too much, but, uh, I think he's in there just enough that you do even appreciate at the end, you know, the little bit of comic relief where he gets hit by the car and, and whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Zachy disagrees. I don't know. I, well, <laughs> Zachy hates him, and he's going to die on that hill. Brian, you ignorant slut. No. Um, <laughs> I, I think for me, it, it's it's a it's a window into a time where the the filmmakers were like, man, our audience is going to get Batman. Maybe you should have a character sure. who like we experience Batman through. And it's kind of like, well, no, I think we can. Yeah, no, his parents died and he he's avenging them it's not it's not you know some complex algorithm <laughs> but that, that that's that's the world we were in back then it's like oh man i don't know we gotta take people by the hand and walk them through this See, no, I'm, and, I'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree with you though because i'm i'm thinking that's not his <laughs> his role isn't to get you to understand that he's that his parents were killed his role no, his role it, is to be the everyman who sees that this person exists, believes this person exists, even though they try and deny it, and he's trying to prove it. So he's he's our point of view character. Wait, wait, and but he also so, serves. Oh, you go, you go first, second. Well, well, just real quick. That I would argue that in a film titled Batman, our point of view character should in fact be Batman. Mm. And I would argue that's that a, that they didn't want to do that. <laughs> in fact, Batman well, isn't that, even the biggest star in this movie. <laughs> and that's exactly my point, right? Is is the most of the oxygen is taken up by Jack Nicholson, rightly so, because he's the biggest name. And so you sort of get that. And and I'm I look at it like, well, big picture, we don't we don't need the Knox perspective as much as it would be the film would be better served by spending more time with with Bruce Wayne and Batman. And if nothing else, for for all of the missteps that Joel Schumacher made with Batman Forever, which I, I have like a complicated relationship with that movie, but I'm like at least like Bruce Wayne is the main character, even as, as all this other stuff is happening. Like it's still his journey that we're following. And it's, you know, and, and obviously they, they recognize the ultimate, uh, you know, dis- dispensability of Knox because he's nowhere to be seen in the next one. Right. So, um, I, I, I think it, again, for me, we have 30 years of, of hindsight. So I, I'm like fine with, the way the film is, but definitely at the time I was like, man, I really, I just don't care about this guy. You know, you know I, I was just, the only thing I'll say also, I guess somewhat in defense and maybe it could have been done a little more elegantly. So you wouldn't feel this way, but I think just in a screenwriting sense, he's just someone for the characters to bounce off of mm-hmm. like their feelings, you know, like when Vicky Vale's touring Wayne Manor, it's someone for her to talk to. And later he becomes, you know, someone for Eckhart to basically like F off. We don't talk about him. To, mm-hmm. You know, you know, he, he's sort of a bouncing board for the people. So we get the texture of how everyone's feeling in town about this mysterious figure, I guess. Yeah. And I don't think he, see, I, I think the reason why it doesn't bother me. And I think if he had more screen time, it would, but I think his, he, mm. he doesn't take up so much of the screen time that it, you know, that, well, while while I think your criticism is valid, I'm I'm able to overlook it because he isn't on the screen quite enough to to annoy me. 
if they had actually had a scene of him confronting Vicky and be like, but I love you, then it would have been like, oh, that would be bothersome <laughs> if they tried to make it into like yeah. a real love triangle. And it would bother me yeah. if, if he became like Batman's sidekick. Like that would be a bridge mm. too far. Yeah. You know, see, now I wish he was Robin, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, I mean, Burt Ward Robin. Give him, give him that old. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh cast done director done score done i guess we got a rate uh, actually i just want to mm. touch on really 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 quickly is just uh yeah i'm not very familiar with roger pratt who's the cinematographer for this uh hmm. i'm just looking quickly at his uh yeah, at his, his filmography he he did harry potter and the goblet of fire uh, right. He did the 2010 version of The Karate Kid. Uh, he did the 1998 version of The Avengers. Uh, you know, not a lot of not a lot of huge hits in his. Oh, he did Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, which is probably the closest thing wow. in cinematography to what we got here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I I have to give him I have monkeys. to give him yeah he did Twelve Monkeys, The Fisher King. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I always just find to be funny based on, you know, if it's like if the Frankenstein monster came from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> but I, I thought the cinematography, I thought, you know, I thought it went really well with Burton's visions for this movie. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we should just give him credit for that. Absolutely. So all said and done. 30 some odd years removed from it. Where do you rank it? Zachy. <laughs> uh, well, it's not Jaws, but uh, I would I, certainly in terms of my affinity for it, I would place it uh, just below Jaws. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I can't deny, like I, I am completely emotionally attached to this movie for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah. So as much as Jaws conjures feelings aside from, I mean, Jaws is a more skillfully, perhaps, you know, top to bottom made, written, whatever film. But in terms of how it makes me feel and how beloved it is by me and, you know, Zachy and I caught it when they put it back in theaters like three years ago or something, which I did not see in theaters back in 1989. And seeing it on the big screen, like, was emotional. Like, it just conjured so much inside of me and so i i just can't help but but rate it jaws there you go okay and for me over the time as as i kind of indicated earlier uh my review has kind of ebbed and waned uh you know it started out i you know again i kept going to see it in the movies because i thought it was so great so if you got me in 1989 Mm -hmm. it was jaws uh if you got me in in you know, the year 2000 or so, it was Jaws 4. Uh, but, but you know, with, with, with hindsight and with being able to really just kind of try and look at it as objectively as possible, I got to say, I think it's it, it squarely falls as a solid Jaws 2. Uh, it's, nice. it's, it's an enjoyable movie. It really does hit a lot of solid beats as it goes along. And... and Despite my criticism that, you know, a, a lot of which is based on hindsight, it, it is just an enjoyable ride. 
So, yeah. you know, it, it, I, don't, I don't think it, it has too many missteps in it. And the ones that are there aren't so significant that they should ruin the movie in any way. You know, the, to me, like I said, Pr- Prince is a little bit of a misstep for me. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. J- Jack Nicholson's characterization is a little bit of a misstep for me. Uh, Commissioner Gordon not really having any kind of substance whatsoever is a misstep to me. Uh, so those are the things that keep it from being Jaws. But those things aside, it's still a really solid, enjoyable ride. I can completely get behind both of your your ratings as well. I think, especially when you look at the all the Batman films through the years, I mean, truly looking at screenplays and direction and whatnot, like I, I can absolutely understand. I think, but for me, it's just uh, as a as a, its own thing. I just feel like it's such a enjoyable song you know it's such an enjoyable (laughs) vision it's such a like i just it's a song i love hearing over and over again and so yeah that's it's my personal jaws but i think i think those are good ratings from both you guys too before uh getting on this call i was down in my 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 collection area and i was you know i was looking at my batman section and i what i realized is the bulk of my batman collectibles mm. and things are batman 89 so it's the right. kenner dark knight collection action figures it's the toy biz action figures it's the uh, hot toys michael keaton and you know like just kind of echoing what brian was saying like for me i i i celebrate all aspects of batman but the one that makes me feel warm and fuzzy is 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 michael keaton as batman 89 it's and it's everything that's associated with that because to me it just pulls me back to that time of my life and sort of the joy uh, that I felt being a fan of this stuff back then. Mm-hmm. Cool. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. So just before we call it a night, if you want to just tell anybody who's not aware of what the movie film podcast is about it. Brian, go ahead. <laughs> well, the movie film podcast is a, movie film podcast (laughs) 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 all right good night everybody (laughs) yeah (laughs) we've been doing it for coming up on 10 years now and it's uh, it's basically the way we envision it is is like we want you to join us at the table after watching the movie you've just watched and let's just talk about it. And so we, we usually begin by talking about, you know, what we've been watching throughout the week, whether it be TV or film, we talk about the film news that we've been probably texting one another about throughout the week and just see how we feel about those sorts of things. And then there tends to be a centerpiece film at the end, uh, whether it's a new release in theaters or streaming. And we have a non-spoiler section where we will give our general impressions and say if we, we yay or nade it, but then we'll go past the spoiler wall where we can just talk about everything and pick it apart and say what we love, say what didn't work for us. And uh, I, I'm enjoying it. And I, I got to say, I'm continually uh, blown away by the comments that we get and the response. And so that's been a, a real big fun part of it also for me. So well, you guys know that I'm a, I'm a loyal listener. Uh, and one of the things that I consider to be the mark of a good podcast is when you want to join in the conversation Uh, i I often find myself listening to you in my car as i'm driving to and from a location for work 
And very often I think of, you know, I, I start answering a question that you've asked or or I comment about something <laughs> you're saying. No, no, it's not this. It's that. Uh, yeah. And, and the only downside to that is if I were, you know, sitting at my desk or at home, I'd probably text one of you and tell you, you know, hey, I just listened to this and you said this. And I think I've done that a few times over the years, but uh, I would do it a lot more if, <laughs> if I was not in my car. Because uh, by the time I get out of the car, you know, I, I've gone on to think of other things. Yeah, but no, I, I we would absolutely welcome it if you did, because I mean, that's something that even in recent years, I feel like is happening more and more is interaction with everybody. And then it really does feel like a community. And it's that's one of the parts of it I love the most. Same, same and, and by the way, we 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 do Brandon mentioned, but we also do uh, commentary tracks uh, yes. usually every other week. And that's become uh, just as much sort of a part of uh, our our catalog, you know. And I enjoy those very much as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So, that said, we're gonna call it a night. Thank you guys for coming on. I really appreciate it, and I enjoy the time we get together to talk. So uh, I look forward to next time if you can't avoid me. Me too. Absolutely, always <laughs> a pleasure. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Miss me. Nice place you got here. Lots of space. Uh, Vicky, we really had a talk. Very upset. We were having dinner. I was a man doing well with a beautiful woman. And without so much as an apology, you ran off with that sideshow phony. You know, Vic, I've recently had a tragedy in my life. Alicia threw herself out of the window. Oh, my God. But you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs.
tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? I always ask that of all my prey. I just like the sound of it. <laughs> Never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> inside. I'm really crying. You might join me for a week. 